This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Today's guest speaker leads product strategy at Ultimate Software. Listen in as Armin Berjekli and I discuss how AI and NLP will create empathy in the workplace, why leaders must consider the ethics of AI, and what diverse teams are doing to be successful with data and algorithms. This is Humane. Welcome to Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and I will be your host throughout this series. Together, we will explore AI through fireside conversations with industry experts. From business executives and AI researchers to leaders who advance AI for all, Humane is the channel to release new AI products, to learn about industry trends, and to bridge the gap between humans and machines in the fourth industrial revolution. If you like this episode, remember to subscribe and leave a review. Welcome back to the Humane Podcast, everyone. My name is David Jakobovich, and today we have a special guest joining us from San Francisco. Armin Burjekli is an entrepreneur who has dedicated his career to pushing the boundary of artificial intelligence with special focus to emotion and empathy to work with people as they are. He created a company called Kenjoya that was acquired by Ultimate Software around three years ago. Today, he leads product strategy for Ultimate Software in San Francisco. Thanks for joining us, Armin. It's my pleasure, David. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And, you know, AI is so rapidly evolving. And we shared before kicking off the show that when I used to live in Florida, at one point, I almost took a job with Ultimate Software. So I love the company. I've played on the ping pong tables in Weston, Florida, and it's an amazing culture that Ultimate has. How has Ultimate fostered such a culture that has humans who are working on technology? I have to agree with you. Um, <laughs> our roads have crossed here. It's a small world in some ways. Ultimate is a pretty special place and you know, defies some of the characteristics that people ascribe to companies as they get to a certain size. You know, It's 5,000 employees. It was recently taken private in one of the largest deals in history for almost $11 billion. Uh, so you get a sense, of sort of a sense of the financial success of the company. But the core has always remained this mantra of people first. You know, internal people, the employees, and the customers in that sort of grouping. And it comes from CEO on down. A gentleman named Scott Sher has been CEO and founder for over 20 years. He's led the ship. And every time that I've had the opportunity to spend time with Scott or see him speak, whether it is internal or external, whether he's talking to investors or he's doing an employee event, he always makes it clear that sort of the very base of his pyramid. The most important thing to him are the people building the organization, the employees. And his philosophy has been, if you take care of your people, they will take care of 
you and they'll take care of the customers. And that level of trust and authenticity and value placed on the humans, as we're going to be talking about today, I think is infectious, becomes the core part of the culture and the defining characteristic. And as we now service many, many thousands and thousands of customers and have that privilege, it's not an insignificant number of them that come to Ultimate and say, I love your products, but I also want a piece of your culture. I want to replicate it here. So it's a fun topic. It's something we're proud of. And I think it's pretty unique. And uh, the more that we can help bring it out to the rest of the world, I think the better. Yeah. And, you know, traditionally, I know Ultimate's products have been about software eating the world and helping to support with uh, human and people solutions for companies that may not have dedicated human resource teams and dedicated teams to handle all the processes. So traditionally, I know Ultima got started with UltiPro and, and all these great products. I used to do some research in that space as well when I worked for ADP. So it was fun to, to see how the company's evolved and gone back private now. But now as a private company, it's even more important than ever to think about what's the direction of technology. And, you know, it's been 20 years and, and Ultimates keep on evolving. What's some of the new technology that your team's working on? That's a great question. And I also push it even one step further and say sort of what are the challenges that this new technology brings, not just in your traditional rollout, adoption, education, or market, et cetera, but actually in the arena of why are we doing what we're doing from a fundamental reason, right? What are the ethical challenges that we need to be thoughtful about? And so where I focus on in my role is sort of where are we going a couple of years on out, and in particular, the way I describe my, my job to my teammates is you need me to be successful so that our kids can have the opportunity to work at Ultimate Software. And I know that may sound a little glib or what have you, but sort of history is littered with companies that were doing great and they failed to see where the market was going. They failed to see where the needs were. And then they had to come to that realization too late. So we like what we're doing, want to keep doing it. And so my role kind of emphasizes that reading tea leaves, but also bringing your own understanding of this intersection of the capabilities of new technology and the unmet challenges in the human resource space and where solutions are. So a significant amount of what I do is looking at exactly that. Like we can all agree as participants in this space that there's some things that we do pretty well. There's a lot of things that are still unmet needs, frustrations, gaps. And what you do is you start to come upon new technologies like artificial intelligence is you start to map and say, well, will this new technology help me solve one of these longstanding problems? And implicit in that comment is alone technology should not be deified and worshipped and put on a pedestal like we often do here in Silicon Valley. It is not a solution in and of itself. It's a avenue among many others, that could help you tackle things uh, that you've always wanted to and couldn't do, or you didn't have the even the imagination that you could solve it. And I think we're reaching a point now with where technology is and the advancements that have happened, where you can credibly say pretty much anything we can dream of can happen, right? Science fiction is going to become science fact, regardless of your position on that. It's just undeniable progress that's happened in the underlying hardware capabilities. And so... I'm very excited to take a look not only at existing product offerings like performance management and say, what are the things we can do differently now that we have some of these new tools, as well as dream and imagine and say, where is it that today companies just cannot do it or that's sort of a, a lucky strike that they can solve a problem 
or they have to hire a big consulting company to come in, do long studies, spend a lot of money, areas there where software can make a difference. And so in that arena is where I apply my trade and get to apply some of my background and also my projection of where the industry is going. And the industry is going in such a diverse place. You know, one, we can even look at content with humans. You know, recently, the show, thinking very forward about Black Mirror, there was the movie Bandersnatch this year, which is all about choosing your own adventure. So humans are able to get heard throughout that experience. And you're feeling like you're part of that process. I think that was so interesting because Black Mirror won the Nebula Award for game writing because of how unique that was. And translating that back to companies, you know, the challenge with large organizations is often employees often feel like they're just another number, right? They're a cog in the wheel, they're part of the process, but that's possible to be changed. And that's possible to bring empathy into the workplace. And, you know, AI and NLP could do that. Perhaps you could share more what's Ultimate doing around that. Yeah, touched upon some really great things there with Black Mirror. And I think that it's a great show. And I think it underscores the point I'm making that, you know, I think the traditional approach to technology is just some sort of let it lead. You know, whatever happens, happens. We'll fix the problems afterwards sort of retroactively. You know, leading companies like Facebook and Google have been demonstrators of that sort of faith. I don't think it's like a maliciousness. I think it's an optimism that, wow, opportunity, let's put it out in the market. And if there's a problem, then we'll deal with it later. And I think in the world of ultimate being people first, step one, but also just more expansively in the world of human capital, the responsibility is too great, right? Like we're not biotechnology companies, right? We're not directly building, you know, medications that save lives, but take one step further, the work that we do, starting from payroll on up to talent management, is we help people pay the bills, right? We help them put food on the table. We help them take their kids and make sure they can get taken care of at a doctor. And so you take these two worlds, we're sort of this really advancement, steady, and actually geometric growth in capability of technology, which makes pretty much anything possible. And you put into a world where you really have to quote Spider-Man and say, with great power comes great responsibility. We can't afford and we won't just culturally take an approach of put it out there, figure out the problems are, fix it later. I think we've been very, very much of the mindset that assume the future is now, assume capabilities are going to happen what is it that we really want out of these technologies? And what is it that we don't want out of these technologies, right? Like what box do we put it in? And then from that point, it's actually a position of strength to say, here's the ethical considerations with some of these new capabilities. Within that boundary box, with that philosophy, how do we pursue some of these goals of building better products, solving customer problems? And I'm pretty excited about how that approach is starting now to become contagious to the overall community. I see lots of companies now starting to say, yeah, we need to talk about our ethics code, both internally and externally. And I'm happy to go into that today and kind of explain to you sort of our directionality on it. But I think conceptually, it's important to be proactive because this is a set of disruptive capabilities coming our way and sort of putting our head in the sand and saying, oh, we'll deal with it with the outcomes later, the good and the bad, I think is the wrong way to approach it. Yeah, so you mentioned the big juggernauts like Google and Facebook, and there's so much going on in tech today. And I know earlier this year, Google launched their AI advisory board for ethics, and in less than one week, got completely disbanded. What do you think companies can do better to proactively support ethics and AI and build technology from within? So I applaud Google for what they tried to do, which was to get a bunch of diverse inputs and from outside the company. 
and set their ethical code. And it ran into some trouble because some of the voices on that committee were viewed as potentially flawed. I think the challenge more broadly is if you look at what happened to Facebook last year when they got hauled in front of Congress, it typifies the technology first approach. Like, hey, we put stuff out there, people used it. There were some problems, right? Like you know, governments were overthrown or people were objectified, children were harmed. And I don't fault them for that happening, but the reaction as Zuck went to Congress was 14 times in each one of those sessions, right? He was in front of the House, he was in front of the Senate. He was posed with one of those hard questions of, well, Facebook has done X, Y, or Z thing that's bad. What are you going to do about it? And it was super interesting to me that essentially he said, AI will fix it to answer every time one of those questions, those almost unanswerable questions was asked. And I don't view that in this dismissive, like he's trying to dodge the question. I view it as this philosophical technology maybe created the problem. Technology will be the solution to the problem. Uh, but I think that's a little backwards. Sometimes you need to be more thoughtful about the problems you're going to create before you create them. And so I can draw an example from Google I.O., right, their yearly conference. Last year, they got a lot of buzz because they unleashed their voice assistant in a demo during I.O. where basically they had the voice assistant call on behalf of a human and make an appointment. I think it was at a, a hairstylist. And it was really cool to see the computer, you know, say, hello, I'd like to make an appointment. And, you know, the hairstylist was giving some time ranges and the computer was figuring out how to say yes, sure, 1030. But what threw everyone off was the fact that the computer had started to mimic some human behaviors, particularly saying things like, mm-hmm, and um, and yeah. And those little tiny signals that me and you will have in a conversation, we're human, we should have that. The fact that they had replicated that into a machine set off a whole ethical quandary because essentially the person on the other end of a phone call from a Google assistant could not reasonably tell, am I talking to a bot? Am I talking to a person? And that creates some very interesting challenges for our society. And so again, as an example of the technology is capable, of course, it could essentially replicate a person. So why not without proactively asking, why should we be doing things like that? And so that is my fundamental criticism of my industry overall is that we tend to do this backwards. And it's worked for the most part. I mean, we all benefit from the fruits of technology right now. But as we get into some of these new boundaries that are getting knocked down, because the again, the hardware has advanced so much, we have 240,000 times more power in a central processing unit than we did 40 years ago. And that's only going up exponentially, where I don't think that old approach works. And particularly, again, in my industry and in my company of Ultimate Software with the culture of people first, we've said, let's not do it that way. We have too much responsibility. Like we really are enablers of people's lives and livelihoods and wellness and being able to take care of their families. And so what I think is the solution for some of these approaches is first, you as a company have to embrace the boundaries and the direction of your artificial intelligence approach. And that's what we've done at Ultimate. We set an internal group. We created a set of ethical considerations. It's a short list. I think it's like six items. But then as we build software, as we design the future, we know which box we're operating in. And second part was let's take it to our customers and to our prospects and let them know what their vendor is doing. And one, for feedback, of course, to make sure that they understand. But two, to say, this isn't something you want to sweep under the rug. This is not something that you want to hope your employees don't ask about. As we get savvier and savvier audiences, whether they be consumer world like Facebook, or whether they be internal employees like in Ultimate's case. 
Hey humans, are you accumulating lots of listening minutes for your podcast, but not being rewarded for your listening time? There's a new app available now called PodCoin where you can listen to podcasts and donate your listening time to charity. PodCoin gives you the opportunity to be rewarded for listening to your favorite podcasts. Whether you're listening to Joe Rogan, Tim Ferriss, or Terry Gross, or even Humane, PodCoin is the new app for you to give back for your listening minutes. Check it out on the App Store. You know, people want to know, what are you doing all this for, right? Like, I'm not just going to take it at face value that all these investments and new technologies, new software, new capabilities is for my and the greater good. So you better tell me up front so that I can get a sense of the directionality, the limits, the boundaries, the approaches. And in that world where you have your team aware, you have transparency, you have a healthier environment to actually benefit from some of these capabilities versus a different approach, which is sweep it under the rug, hope no one notices, hope no one asks questions, just let technology kind of run wild and figure it out later. That cavalier approach, it's no-go for me. And I think it leads to outcomes like you described, where if you try and retrofit ethics, try and retrofit morality and responsibility in your advanced technology portfolio, it's a little too late. Yeah, like even from a hiring perspective, I know a couple of times in the show, we've talked about the case last year where Amazon designed the recruiting tool where it went through resumes and determined if the candidates were a good fit for employability. And then they would be pushed on to the hiring manager to get interviewed. And it was shortly uncovered that no women were getting the interviews. And that's because it was very retroactively designed, not proactively. Yeah, that was a really interesting case. People often ask me, hey, what's you know the greatest risk in AI for recruiting in this case? And I'll tell you, the greatest risk is that AI actually takes no risks. And it's a little bit counterintuitive to think that way. But what AI is, is really a bunch of formulas. It's a bunch of pattern recognition. It's a bunch of math. And it is only as smart as the data it's seen before and what it could derive out of that data. And so the mistake that Amazon made, and I give them credit because they were very open about what happened and they never actually unleashed their recruiting bot into the world, thankfully. But they had trained it on themselves and only themselves. And when you work at a company as large as Amazon, you must get a sense that, wow, we're super diverse. There's lots of different people in the office. And so we're a wonderful training set. But the reality is in the world of artificial intelligence, like the size of a company like Amazon is actually a drop in the bucket in terms of examples, right? I mean, how many hiring decisions have been made in Amazon up until now? Maybe a million at best. And they tend to be wildly biased because, well, who you hire is sort of a byproduct of the people you have in place right now. They tend to hire people that, you know, talk like them, act like them, look like them, or are comfortable around them, right? And that becomes a reinforcing loop. And that is exactly what happened with their algorithm is they had no idea that they had tended to not hire from colleges and universities that were focused on women. But the machine just looked at the data and said, wow, (laughs) we look like we never end up hiring someone who went to a woman's college. Therefore, I will make that a rule and I will enforce that ruthlessly because I'm being a good machine and I'm just trying to be the best possible version of the people that trained me. And so it brings up a really important point that as you build these essentially pattern matching systems and math machines, the diversity of the data you train them on is wildly critical into the requirement, right? The hope for some companies, but for us, the requirement that the outcomes be with as minimal bias as possible. I think all algorithms have bias. So that's probably for another talk since it's such a rich topic. But if you want to 
curb some of our challenges as people, we have unconscious bias. Machine has the ability to have that bias identified, measured, and hopefully over time ameliorated or potentially even eradicated. You can only get there if you have extremely diverse training inputs. And so a piece of advice I have to any company that's thinking about rolling their own algorithms is probably don't because you don't have access to anywhere near enough examples of different people, different voices, different situations, despite your own belief that you probably do. And hey, Amazon couldn't do it. That's a really big company. It's been around for a long time and it's been wonderfully successful in most measures. And yet they ran into this problem where there was hidden bias in their data because their data was simply too limited. So you gotta be as expansive as possible and go to vendors that have access to lots and lots of diverse inputs, us being one of them because we work with thousands of companies, but there are others out there. Yeah, and it's like, even if that was in the data, right? If it says you're a woman, you're a man, you're white, you're African-American, how would that ever be reliable, right? Like it's such a diversity in every subset of every ethnic group and every demographic group that it just wouldn't make sense. So for me, when I saw that story, I thought like, how is this even possible? Like, wouldn't you anonymize out male and female from the, from the start? Yeah, and it's interesting. If you pull aside any Amazon executive and said, hey, did you know that you guys have this bias in your organization? They would have been, no, right? It's not obvious because it's not a conscientious choice that they were making. Like I oftentimes will let people know that don't assign maliciousness when sort of ignorance will probably suffice. And so again, companies that built from the ground up, they start with a founder, that person hires a couple of people, those people hire people that they enjoyed interviewing and already unconscious biases at work, right? If you have 10 hires to make by the end of the month, you have 100 applicants, it's only human nature to say, well, I could, you know, create this incredible blinded, fair Excel spreadsheet, you know, not look at the person that I'm hiring, not look at their name, but what happens in reality, right? Like we have too little time, we have too little resource, we have too much pressure. And so we start to lean on some of these cheat codes that we've evolved as people to deal with these resource constraints, which is in this case, unconscious bias of, well, that was just a really fun conversation with, um, you know, a few of those people. We came from the same hometown. We like the same teams. I just felt right. I'll pick those people. Right. And in the end you go home at night, you go, I probably didn't pick the exact best people. (laughs) And oftentimes that plays out. Right. And so when I look again, the broader question of where does artificial intelligence and advanced technologies play into our world? I do not, it's a hard rule of ours in our ethical code want to replace people or even replicate people. That's not a worthy achievement. Uh, It's not a necessary one. It doesn't lead to a better world. I instead look at this perspective from people have to make decisions all day long. Even if you're a frontline employee, even if you're an intern all the way on up to being a CEO, your day is defined by the decisions you make. Those decisions are almost always made with a dearth or absence of all the information you need. And even sometimes if you have the information, it tends to be skewed or biased, like in the cases that we've been talking about with Amazon. And so if the promise of some of these technologies comes to bear, when you go to make a decision, you should have a buddy in the software that services you. You are the important piece of the equation that brings more evidence to you, that brings you some confidence that you're doing the right thing, some perspectives you may not have considered, and maybe even curbing your own sort of inclinations to lean on shortcuts like unconscious bias. So decision-making support, I think, is the worthy goal of artificial intelligence. And how does it get there? Well, 
you have to enable it to work with us and understand our problems. And so that kind of gets into the boundaries that we're starting to push with new technology. Yeah. And, you know, even on that recruiting case, perhaps we could mask our voice, right? So you could have an interview and you have no idea if the person you're talking to is male, female and what that voice is. But then it's like you'd reduce your bias, but you create the risk of more social arbitrage and social hacking because then, oh, who would be the person who is actually interviewing? Maybe there's someone else. And how long in the process can we reduce that bias until, oh, wow, that's the person I've been interviewing. You know, it, it gets interesting. So mm-hmm. So, but yeah, I mean, biases are part of it. And the success of algorithms is as much the data as well. And so, you know, look, Ultimate, you've been around for 20 years now and Armin, both with your venture and now at Ultimate, you've seen a lot. What is some of the types of data you're using for new products and what's on the horizon for Ultimate? Sure. Great question. Um, step one, I think the idea of, oh, do we have to like suddenly pioneer new ways of gathering data and like break into what have been previously off limits uh, type data like emails or Slack chats, back to ethical code, that's entirely uninteresting to us and we would never do it. You only want to look at data that is intended to be looked at. You don't want to start feeding the beast and saying, well, any data is good data and hey, they're my employees, so they've signed up for this. That's unacceptable. It's not the right thing to do morally. It's also not any way to build a level of trust with your employee pool. So we take a a very strong position that the only data that we'll be looking at is data that was intended to be looked at. Things like surveys that you submit to your company that's intended to be looked at. Things like performance reviews that you submit, let's say Peer 360. Hey, I want someone else to look at this. I'm not writing it for myself. I'm not writing it privately to another individual. And so uh, for the most part, the data we look at already exists. And what we're really bringing to the game is a sense that, hey, the problems that are unsolved or undersolved in human capital, they're people problems. Of course, they're people opportunities too. But if you take any CEO side, I've been a CEO, it's not a numerical challenge, right? You're not going, uh, you know, waking up in the morning and saying, if only I did 5% more of this thing, suddenly all problems would be solved. If that was the case, this entire industry would be a bunch of high fives and hugs. And there wouldn't be conference after conference about things like retention and regrettable attrition and all these things, right? So the unsolved problems are in the qualitative. They're in the human domain. They're in the, hey, I'm doing everything right. I'm doing everything like I used to, and it's just not working anymore. The performance isn't there, or the people aren't as motivated. They're not engaged. They're people challenges. And so then I look and say, all right, how can technology help if technology always ignores the humanity in us? And when I talk about the humanity in us, it draws upon our psychological background, right? We as people feel as much and oftentimes more so than we think. And yet software has almost always operated on the assumption that people are just purely rational beings in the human resources space. Well, people are just this combination of their pay and how long they work for that manager and what location they're in and their job title. And while all of those demographic details are important, We all know from having coffee with a peer that how you feel really dominates that entire equation, right? I always use the example that people will look at their phone and say, I hate this phone. It doesn't work. It never works. And that's totally not true. It's an emotion that you have. It's a frustration. And then logic starts to fill in like, oh, you know, I'm still in contract, so I better deal with it. Or my contract's up soon, so I can think about going somewhere else. But that order of events is exactly how we are built, which is we feel, we decide based on feeling, and then we throw in some rationality, some logic to try and make us feel in control, actually, that we're not just sort of recklessly going around. And so the point I make around that is if technology is trying to solve really big, interesting problems or help us make big decisions, and yet is not aware, sensitive, and thoughtful about the fact that our emotions matter, 
And in fact, they're not just some cute thing to throw in as a marketing bullet point, but actually they are the foundation of our decision-making. Then you cannot look someone in the eye and say, I'm really going to advance the state of the art in this space. And so the work that we've done at Ultimate and in my personal career, my research background has been in building capabilities, technology to have empathy or demonstrate it in a lot of ways, being sensitive. When we look at a piece of data, it's not just how many words were said and a word count and a word cloud, uh, which is sort of where things go to today. But we push forward and we say, how is this person feeling? What are they feeling it about? And let's also throw away some of the previous restrictions around what language are they communicating in? You know, are they an introvert, an extrovert? Are they male or female? Are they older or younger? All these things affect the language that we use and the work that we've done over the last 15 and nearly 20 years now is to equip computers with the capability to say, I'll do the number crunching, I'll do the pattern recognition, and I will figure out that however this person's most comfortable communicating it, I'll figure out what they are talking about, how they feel about it, because that is the origin story of what I can do to help. I have to understand the problem. You can't fix what you can't measure. And so to me, we've been counting lots of things that are easy to count, but we haven't been counting what actually counts. And that's the work that we do at Ultimate in particular with a technology toolkit we call Xander that helps us understand the qualitative aspects of data equally or if not better than the pure statistical and demographic data. And that opens up a whole world of opportunity in being able to help folks with their day-to-day jobs and decision-making. What do you think the, the future work looks like, Armin? Is this one where we're going to have these Google Glass devices on us and seeing each other's social feeds appearing around each other and, you know, uh, swiping... Uh, actions throughout the day? I mean, give me a picture of how you think Ultimate and yourself thinks about the future of work. Sure. I mean, I think the immersion in technology is um, a runaway train. I mean, I use the example, we used to have email and phone calls and we added text and then we added Slack. And did we subtract pretty much anything? Maybe phone calls got subtracted a little bit, but it tends to be additive and cumulative. And I've never met a company that has too little data or too little to do. I've never met an HR team that has enough people And so this world of being swamped by inputs and not having enough time, money, people to understand them, that is endemic. It is our current situation and it's only going to become worse. And therefore, it sort of calls for companies like ours to say, all right, we want to be there. We want to help make your organization better. What could we do in this space? And a lot of that future of work comes down to, well, here's the fundamental thing. People are still the critical aspect. We have zero interest And we are philosophically opposed to the idea of machines running companies and replacing people. So people are still at the center of the universe. What is the situation of people? Not enough time, not enough energy, not enough resource or privilege to continuously learn. We're affected by unconscious bias. And so these are situations where machines can come in and say, all right, like, let me do some of the heavy lifting for you. Let me find some things out for you. And so when you go to make that hire, when you go to build that team, when you go to write a review for someone, let's do what we actually promise to do and help you develop that person or help you find a person who's really going to find a roost at your organization culturally and develop within sort of the family of the company and not just be a a fit from skill perspective, that softer side, that qualitative side, that emotional side that actually impacts our day-to-day existence like nothing else. Let's be savvy to it and let's build technology that works for us and change the situation that I think we've been subject to where we build the technology and then we end up being sort of uh, subjugated by it and talking the way it wants us to talk and operating in the way it wants us to operate. It's time to break down those barriers. And I think some of the work we're doing at Ultimate in artificial intelligence in particular will make that a reality. 
Well, I love everything that you're doing. It sounds like it's part of the human movement. And we're here about being humane, about taking AI, bridging the gap of humans and machines. I agree. AI should not replace people, but it should augment us. And thanks so much for being on the show today, Arnold. My pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity to uh, spend time with you and your audience. Hey, humans. Thanks for listening to this episode of Humane. My name is David Jakobovich, and if you like Humane, remember to click subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Luminary. Thanks for tuning in and join us for our next episode. New releases are every Tuesday. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.